When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. And welcome to Awesome Etiquette, where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on workplace gossip about a disliked coworker, a wedding gift for a couple that eloped, how early is too early to begin yard work, and how to nicely say, you've told me this story before. For Awesome Etiquette sustaining members, we talk about etiquette for wearing headphones in public. Plus your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript segment on cousins, first cousins, second cousins, and first cousins once removed. All that's coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. Hey, cuz. Could I get your help with something? Why, yes. I have weddings in my future. Oh, do you now? I do. Are you already married? (laughs) I am. Not that kind of wedding. Okay, gotcha. Good. Phew. Immediately, I will be attending a wedding next weekend. Okay. Oh, that's quick. Okay. And I think I've pretty much got that one covered. Oh, I'm glad. Okay. <laughs> Get the suit out, be sure it's pressed, pick a colorful tie. Do you know whether or not your children have been invited to the wedding? Uh, they are not invited. Uh, is your wife going with you to the wedding? She is. Okay. Do you have child care for the wedding? We do. Have you gotten a gift for the wedding? We haven't. Oh! Thank you for the reminder. We found it. I didn't think that was going to work. I figured you had all your boxes checked. <laughs> I- I've got my sources. Okay, good. What I'm thinking about are weddings that are coming in the spring. Okay. We have some extended family, Pooja and I, who are starting to plan their weddings. And I am enjoying it because it's not a wedding that I will be a big part of. So I get to (laughs) offer advice when it's requested and plan on attending and enjoying myself. Did you all hear that key, key thing Dan just said? Offer advice when it's requested. Oh my gosh, is there nothing harder when talking to a couple preparing for a wedding than just simply either telling them what you did for your own or offering them advice on what they think they're going to (laughs) do? And one of the best things you can do is simply listen to a couple and wait for them to ask for your advice. Oh, you're having a wedding? Let me tell you all about my wedding. No, 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 no. (laughs) But the requests are starting to come, genuinely. Okay, good. Pooj will be talking to her sister and, oh, I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about this. Hey, could you ask Dan if... (laughs) It is sort of this fun moment in etiquette enthusiast's life or an etiquette expert's life when people turn to you because that is your particular profession. And like you're like, oh, you want to hear from me. <laughs> Yay. I have value. Yes. I have something to offer. And we know that weddings are where many people meet Emily Post for the first time, not Very just true. friends and family. Very that. True. It is a high stakes moment in someone's life. There is a lot going on. Other people are involved. And it's not just wedding planners. There are people who think broadly about the tradition of 
getting married. And it's nice to be able to offer something. So you know what I'm going to ask next, right? You've gotten ABBA a copy of our wedding etiquette book, right? As a gift, as an engagement gift. Please t- come on. We have a whole stack of them at the office. My face I will sign is it. in my hands. Oh, my goodness. Would you sign it? That would be so nice. Absolutely. I will before I leave. We will do that this afternoon. Okay. But we have some things to get to more immediately here. As always, we've got a show to do. Let's answer some questions. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. And if you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your social media post so we know you want your question on the show. And Sustaining Members, remember to put Sustaining Member in your message. We'll answer your questions over on the Sustaining Member site where you can access your ads-free version of the show and all your bonus questions. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our first question this week is about a difficult situation involving gossiping about a disliked coworker. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. My department director, let's call him David, is universally disliked by everyone in the department. I'm not a huge fan of him either, but I have always tried to show respect when we've collaborated on projects. Inevitably, though, every work social function, of which David does not attend, involves swapping stories of his rudeness, lack of consideration, empathy, or basic social skills. It feels inappropriate to join in on the gossiping, 
but it almost seems like a camaraderie-building exercise for the team, too. Generally, I've laughed at their stories and refrained from sharing my own anecdotes about David. But last week, my manager asked me directly what I thought of David, in front of coworkers at a happy hour. I didn't know what to say. It felt like a test. I gave a non-answer, saying that I hadn't worked with him enough to form much of an opinion. But immediately that felt wrong, too, like they were expecting me to vent my frustrations as well. I am new to the firm and want my team members to like me and trust me. Is there any time or place to complain about the boss? How can I steer the conversation away from this topic when it comes up? Confused coworker. P.S. Love the show. Thank you for all that you do to make the world a more considerate, respectful, and honest place. I like the fact that this ends with honest place because it reminds me of where I want to bring it to. And I think there are moments where we, especially whenever we human beings are grouped together, whether it be a family or a social circle or a work social circle or a team that you're on of some sort, there can be frustrations and dynamics and those get vented and they, they get talked about or there, you know, there are common things. And, you know, Dan and I are pretty much a team of two, except for, you know, having a couple extra folks around. And it's like, we can kind of laugh at the things that we do that are very typical to one another because we we've been there long enough we love each other enough there's enough camaraderie there but we also don't have anyone else to laugh about them too and so you kind of have to laugh about what the other person does awkwardly to them if you're going to air it you know or or we both like talk to Jordy about it but I would Lizzie, say, can I vent with you about you for yeah, just a second like, here it's just really fun like like you know you do this thing and it's actually pretty funny and it's we kind of take that sort of tone with it but there is and I've certainly worked in many places and Dan I know you've experienced it too that It does. It feels like it's trying to be a camaraderie building exercise. It feels like it's trying to to make bonds and ties between people. But really, it is at the expense of someone else. And often it is a superior or a particular person on your team. And there's an exclusive feeling to it. There's a I don't need to be a part of this feeling to it that I'm hearing our listener asking about. And I want to come back to that honest piece because I think honestly you don't want to engage – it doesn't sound like anyway – that you want to engage in these conversations. You might save your moments to commiserate about a coworker's behavior for when they really are warranted. Like when that thing happens and there's someone standing next to you and David walks away and you eye roll. You know what I mean? And it's kind of just innocent every day. And I I do think we can put that in the realm of innocent every day. I don't think we have to be perfect all the time. But I like the fact that our question asker is saying, you know, yeah, there are things about this guy that are annoying, but do I need to participate in talking about him this way? Do I need to be in this zone? And I don't think you have to give away anything or participate in a way that you don't want to with this uh, just to build relationships. In fact, I think you might even end up setting an example that people might naturally follow. And I know I'm, I'm hoping for the best here, but uh, that, that would be my hope for the best. I don't want this to isolate our listener. I'm coming down in a very similar place to you. Okay, (laughs) cool. My big picture thought here was good for you, listener. Good for you sort of listening to your better angels, saying to yourself whatever it is about this person, the rude, inconsiderate, socially difficult elements, does that stack up and warrant me participating in negative gossip? In the way you started to talk about it, I started to think to myself maybe even – 
verging on the edge of bullying. I, that's I was thinking that too. You've got to be really careful, and and I know this is a supervisor, even a manager supervisor, so it might not feel like bullying. But whenever you get a group of people together that really start to build rapport by tearing someone else down, it's a tricky situation. My antenna go up. Yeah, and. I, like you, I'm trying to stay aware of the the real need sometimes to process and get out and talk about someone who is difficult. And we call it venting because it lets off some steam. It can release some of the social pressure in an organization. But at what point that venting crosses over and starts to become really inappropriate and not just inappropriate but bad, negative for the organization, yeah. negative for the way the team works and functions – even if the gripe is legitimate, the griping itself has its own cost. Oh, and yeah. deciding not to participate in that is a choice that shows character in yeah. some ways. My mother would say, if everyone's jumping off a bridge, does that mean you're going to jump off a bridge too? Your mother and a lot of other mothers out there have used that over the years for sure. That's a classic for, hey, are, do you have to do it just because everyone else is doing it? And if your instinct, your emotional read of the situation is this doesn't make you feel good. It doesn't feel like it's a good thing. I would trust that in the same way I trust it when I hear it from you. So what does venting look like? To me, at least, venting looks like something I would do with someone who doesn't know any of these people. You know, that's what I might do at home with my spouse or with my best friend or my sister or someone who's not working with them. Venting probably looks more like saying something to one person or maybe two people to let off steam. You each say one or two things and then it's done and you move on. I think we start to get into a kind of real negative space with it when you start having a, a larger group who are going around sharing multiple stories, almost like finding things to to keep this conversation going. It's an interesting dynamic because for some reason you feel you feel better knowing you're not in this assumption or this reaction that you're having alone. And so sharing those stories, you know, you get that bonding out of it. But it starts to look weird to me when it starts to look wrong. It starts to cross into that real negative territory when it's story after story as opposed to like two or three people sharing something commiserating and then moving on, you know. So I really like that idea of taking those processing thoughts, let's call them, outside the organization to a a family member, someone who's not directly impacted as a way to really take care that what you're saying isn't just going to cycle into negativity within the group. And I get that by doing that, you're then losing a little bit of the commiseration. You know what I mean? You're losing a little bit of the understanding of what's going on. But what's the purpose for what you're doing? So I want to answer the question of how do you respond to that moment where your manager is asking you in front of everybody and it feels like a test. It feels like a are you part of this group kind of moment. And we realistically talk about tier two conversations, sometimes having this flavor or this tone to them. Someone will bring up something that they know is a little bit controversial or difficult and it is a test. They're trying to see how you respond to it. Mm -hmm. These are the moments where you have to know your center. You have to know where you're coming from and what you're comfortable with. And you have to be strong in yourself. You can be honest. You can talk about how it affects you. You can own your own opinions. You can say that you're not entirely comfortable talking about it even. Those are all fair options. You could say, boy, I've noticed a few things, but I would not want to air them here or – 
I'm just not comfortable talking about that. Exactly. It might be that you just simply say, oh, I don't think I'm comfortable commenting on that. Or, no, nah, I'm not going to go there. Next, please. Or whatever it is to just kind of move it along. I've, I have one friend who is really, really good at this. And I've noticed it a couple of times when the conversation turns towards money and finance. And, you know, a lot of our friend group will share what they make or they'll share aspects of benefits that they get or things like that. And he always does a really good job of just saying, you know, I just, this is something I I just tend not to share. Or, you know, I learned a long time ago that this is just not a conversation I'm comfortable being a part of. So I hope you'll understand. And I know it sounds really sincere and like almost Pollyanna and just like, like buzzkill. But at the same time, it also... A, always gets me to think a little bit about my own behavior without actually feeling judged by him. And B, it it gives him the space and the support of the people around him when we respect it. And I like that. And often we're always so worried about, oh, is it are people going to respond negatively to what I just did? Um, and we're forgetting that until we actually try, one of the other options is that they respond positively and they say, oh, we understand, you know, let's change the subject or something like that. Or it inspires someone else to also not participate in the conversation. There's another benefit that comes with this type of approach as well, and that's that you protect the integrity of your word. Because you can say something a little later in the happy hour or the evening or the next day to your manager you know, I'd love to talk with you about Mm so-and-so. And And now you're having the conversation in private, in a work context, in a way that's serious and substantial. And all of a sudden, your opinions have more weight. And if they're negative opinions, if they're about behaviors that could be addressed or should be addressed, you're in a frame and a context where that might happen. And you start to, to minimize the impact of those concerns when they're aired in a way that's frrivolous, it's like an apology that's offered in an insincere way starts to lose some of its Heft. magic. Yeah, these potentially legitimate complaints or concerns start to turn into gripes and gossip, and you want to be careful about that. If something's really serious and and actually actionable, I think that makes a lot of sense. And then that follows a lot of our other advice of just simply, you know, go speak with a manager about something if it's actually a problem. Confused coworker, thank you so much for this question. There is a lot going on here. We hope that you're able to navigate this tricky situation as it develops moving forward and that this answer helps. I ask you, if you were the employer and had to cut down your staff, which fellow would you keep? That's not hard to answer. But why didn't you go ahead and fire this, uh, Walt? Now, don't be too hasty. Our next question is titled, A Gift for Newlyweds Who Eloped. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I have a question for you two about wedding announcements. I came home from work yesterday to find a wedding announcement from a dear college friend waiting for me in the day's mail. Hooray! I know that technically there's no obligation to purchase a gift after receiving a wedding announcement. However, I'm so overjoyed for the newlyweds that I'd really love to send them a little something to celebrate the start of their new life together. What would be an appropriate gift in this situation? The happy couple doesn't have a wedding registry I can refer to as they eloped. 
I'm leaning towards a gift on the smaller side, both in terms of physical size and cost, simply because I don't want to send them something big that they potentially don't want or need. I'd love your input, though. Thank you for everything that you do and looking forward to hearing your thoughts. All the best, Krista. Krista, thank you for this question. I'll take a stab at a wedding answer. I say do it. It's a really, really nice thought. You can, of course, respond to a wedding announcement with a gift. It's not expected the way it is with an invitation, but I'm sure they will appreciate it. And your ideas about scale and size sound right on the money. Way to sidestep the actual question. What? She wants suggestions. <laughs> what would be a great gift? Well, for, what would be a great gift for a couple who eloped? I like the fact that Chris is already thinking about. I don't want to get them something. A, a, they don't have a registry, so you don't have some some way of kind of knowing what they're looking for. But B, you kind of get something you don't have to return. It's not a huge inconvenience if it's something they don't like. There's not, you know, I like the I like the way she's thinking about what would make a good gift for a couple who eloped. You asked me in the introduction if I had a wedding present yet, and I said no, I did not. And you said, well, you've got to get on that. And I said, it's okay. I've got ideas. <laughs> I like these situations because I get to pick things that I would like or I really think other people would like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people who listen to the show know some of my go-tos. I have some Vermont-based businesses that produce handmade things that I really like, that I love to get people. There's a pottery artist in Waterbury who I really like. There's Simon Pierce Glass down in southern Vermont that I really like. So I, I go to some of my favorite producers of really nice things. You did those, um, those throws, the, you know, the blankets one year for Christmas, I remember. The alpaca blankets. Yep. And then I look for one that fits the right size. So maybe it's not a full set of stemware. Maybe it's a nice coffee table bowl or something like that. But within those favorite producers, mm-hmm. I look for something that is the right dosage. Engravable picture frame, engravable picture frame, engravable picture frame, engravable picture frame. <laughs> it is still my go-to gift as a suggestion 100% because you can do the date of the elopement or the wedding, excuse me, or you could just put their initials on it or you could leave it blank and just say, you know, I hope you have a picture from your very special day. Congratulations. A little note like that is perfect. But I think that you're in the right category of gifts you love to give because we don't really know what they want and so then the fallback is often what do you what what's gotten good reception in the past what's kind of universal and easy to use i think those are good things it's why i like the bowls the blankets the you know vases like things like that i think kind of everyone you cycle through things like that in your life you know it's not such a heavy thing that it becomes the most precious and sacred you know and it sounds like based on their relationship level that, you know, kind of more of those everyday items is is what's warranted here as a gift. Think about the couple. Think about your relationship. Ultimately, it's the thought that you put into it that's going to come through. Krista, thank you for the question. Good luck on the hunt for a gift. I absolutely love our next question so very, very much. Dan, will you please read the title? It would be my pleasure. What time is okay to begin loud yard work? (laughs) Hi, Lizzie, with an IE and Dan. Thank you for the thought and care that you put into your podcast. Each week, you add a bit of levity to my commute, and I always learn something new. I have a pretty simple question for you. What time is acceptable to start loud yard work chores like mowing or snow blowing? 
Growing up, my mother's rule was always 10 o'clock. I've since relaxed that to 9 o'clock, but my wife disagrees and thinks that 8 o'clock is perfectly acceptable. I always wanted to make sure we didn't wake up any sleeping babies. However, now that we have a five-month-old daughter, congratulations. <laughs> my view has really changed since they wake up so early. <laughs> now we're hopelessly confused as to what is most considerate. Any guidance you can give would be greatly appreciated. Sincerely, trying to be nice to the neighborhood. This one cracks me up because a five-month-old dealt with something like, like this recently. Yeah, no, I haven't. But you, well, I, on the on the noise front, yes. But on the baby front, it does crack me up because the perspective shift all of a sudden is like, wait a minute, these little babies they don't they don't sleep at like early in the morning. Like they sleep all different hours of the day. They're awake all different hours of the day and night. Like, I don't have one and I know this. <laughs> I don't think I've slept past seven in a couple years now. <laughs> oh, man. But it's a great question. And it's really nice that you and your partner are thinking about this and thinking about the impact that you have and trying to guess, you know, based on your lifestyle at different points, both pre-baby and post-baby. You know, so what is acceptable? It'd be kind of nice at 630 when I'm fi- the baby's finally down again to like get that yard work done real quick. I think you're right to wait a little bit. I tend to think that it kind of depends on the yard work. For me, the lawn mowing is one that I would be okay with 8 a.m. or later, personally. That's like a typically, I think we think of visiting hours of actual like imposition on the house itself. So like stopping by, knocking at the front door or phone call to someone as the hours of nine to nine. Those are kind of like really classic. But when it comes to taking care of things in your own life, I think you get like kind of an extra hour on each end almost. (laughs) I wouldn't say totally, but I feel like almost. (laughs) And so the snow blowing is one, for instance, that I could really see that being a no, like 4.30 a.m. all the way up until 8 a.m. You could snow blow. Because you might need to do it to get your driveway clear to, <laughs> to get, get out. To get out to get to work by 7 a.m. I mean, I I just know that some of my neighbors, you know, they work at places where they have to be there by 8. And if it's going to take you a while or the chipping of the ice, that's one that's really loud and really obnoxious. And you kind of just have to live with the fact that you live in a neighborhood just the same way when you live in an apartment building and the kid below you decides to, you know, start playing the trumpet like yeah exactly like you there are just things about living closer to people i struggle with this i'm a country girl and i live in a very classic you know suburban neighborhood i'm picturing your house and you're that sort of classic suburban white picket fence (laughs) scenario with neighbors on this side and neighbors on that side and street traffic going by and I could just imagine this being a question pretty much every Saturday morning. Pretty much, yep. I had my little notes, and I didn't know how your answer would conform to them. And it sounds like it was a pretty similar approach. I was saying 9 o'clock is nice. That's your morning time sort of classic before it's too early, after is okay. No, no, no. That's not where you started. You started with 8 a.m. and you wrote nothing next to it. And then 9 a.m. is nice. And then 10 is awesome. I like that 8 just gets started as like, no comment, but yes, you could start at 8. Well, and <laughs> 9, was, it's nice. 10, it's awesome. I, I was thinking about 8 very similarly to how you were, yeah. which was that there's some stuff that you can kind of get away with a yeah. little ahead of the time that I would think of as the official, it's now okay. Yeah. If I was planning to remove a tree in my yard or something. (laughs) 
I would try to schedule at 9 o'clock later. I would think of that as my big kind of cutoff time. But I might sneak out there and get some stuff done a little sooner if it wasn't going to be a big bother or burden to someone. Or if it really had to happen. Your snowblowing example, I think, is a a good one there. It's really funny because with the snowblower, I will use the snowblower at 4 o'clock in the morning, no problem. I have needed desperately to mow my lawn and not done it because it was like nine o'clock at night on a summer night. And even though it was still like light out, it was still like the lawnmower. No, I won't go there. Or like doing doing stuff in the garage with my wood shop at night. That's like something that I, you know, I'm really aware of what time I'm using power tools at. But it was really funny how the snowblower, which is loud and like, you know, makes grinding noises when it hits ice, that for some reason 4 a.m. seems totally okay. I think your your thinking is clear that the snowblowing is ne- is driven by necessity, yeah. whereas my decision to blow leaves, yeah. maybe not so much a decision based on necessity. Yeah. That might wait even till 10 o'clock where <laughs> – I'm awesome because I've let someone who <laughs> wants to sleep sleep just a little bit more. Final awesome thought. like Dan. <laughs> Final thought on this question. Okay. Talk to your neighbors. Oh, that's a great thing to do. We should have started with that. Get to know your neighbors. Do they work really late? Do they work really early? Do they care at all? Are they even there? Did they do something similar and would love the latitude to meet you out on the yards <laughs> at 5 o'clock to mow before the babies get up? It could be that there is no real question here, and that would be nice to know. Trying to be nice to the neighborhood. We think you're doing a fabulous job. Congratulations on the new baby, and we hope that the neighborhood is quiet at all the right hours. We saw that there are times for noise and fun such as play periods, and times for quiet and work. And we saw some ways of working quietly. Do you know some things you can do to help make your room a quiet place for work? Our next question is titled, How to Nicely Say You've Told Me This Before. Oh, my goodness. I feel like this question, A, I don't think we've ever gotten it. And B, I feel like both every mom is going to want to be armed with this and every kid is going to want to be armed with this. Maybe a cousin or two. Maybe a cousin or two. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. Awesome podcast. I find that I hear the same story again and again from my colleagues. Is there a way to interrupt politely? Is it always rude to interrupt? I've been listening and suffering in silence or interjecting. Oh, yeah, you told me. And then feeling guilty. Thank you for your insight. Life is too short. Life is too short. Life is too short. I want to try to give you a quick answer to this (laughs) because I feel (laughs) like I could repeat myself if I go on too long. You never. Mention it. Mention it nicely. You could say something like, this sounds familiar or, oh, I remember this one does such and such happen <laughs> or I, 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 something like that with good humor. It doesn't need to be the eyes rolled back in your head. I can't believe you're going to tell me this one again. We heard it twice last week and three times the week before that. As long as you're not taking that kind of a tone, I think with some... Self-awareness and some good humor, you can move someone through a story that you've heard many times before. Sometimes you just listen, but three, four times, I think it's worth saying something 
life is really too short. <laughs> this one cracks me up because it's as I get older, like I can remember that someone has told me something before, but I can't remember the details enough to be able to have the moment that cues them into I've really heard this before and no, you don't have to finish the story. But let's look at just for a moment here the politeness aspect of this, because if we think about being patient and kind and good listeners does that require us to move someone along in conversation? You know, it's a classic senior stereotype, right? The the grandpa that tells the same story over and over. But the, the part of that stereotype that we show in entertainment is often the child or the grandchild willing, like, I want to say begrudgingly, but not totally begrudgingly, listening to the story over again. And that's an important piece of how we frame respect in our culture and where we choose to interrupt and say, oh, yeah, or is this the one where or and then you did this, you know, and finish the story. And I think it depends also on how you do it. You can engage the story again in a way that both acknowledges that you know what happens in it and also actually participates in it and and almost like rises to it with a positive attitude as opposed to and then you did this and then this happened I remember you told me last week and don't get me wrong I have you that exact voice that just came out has come out before in legit moments where I'm being impatient and I actually feel rude when I do that like I feel myself not being my best self to the people around me now I do think it's a problem when you are a person who repeatedly tells the same story. So it's like, where where does the rudeness begin? Is it on the person who's repeatedly telling the same thing or is it on the person who's being impatient and wanting to move the conversation that they're hearing along because they've heard it before? I love your idea of rising to the moment, rising to the conversation. I think that if I were to try to excise the best possible answer to this question where there is a little bit of a chicken or egg, what side does the rudeness lay on question at play, that testing yourself, they say a good dancer can dance with any partner, that one of the tests of someone who's really advanced is whether or not they can dance with a beginner and make them look really good or enjoy a dance. And Engaging with a conversation that you've engaged with before, but staying fresh, staying present in the moment, maybe addressing what it was that brought that story to mind as a way to acknowledge that story without calling someone out, but I also love that. sort of connect and affirm with whatever it was that made this story relevant and was probably the thing that the two of you were talking about to begin with. I love that idea. I absolutely love that idea. For me, a lot of the times I feel like I go through life like where I catch myself in a moment I'm familiar with, right? Someone repeating a story to you. And there's this wonderful voice in my head that comes up and just says, hope oh, I'm caught in one of these moments. You know what I mean? And it it makes it so much easier for me to say, okay, I've got options. I could play this part. I could play that part. Who am I going to be right now? And that really... It helps me deal with it because so many of the things that our listeners write in about are exactly that. There are moments you're probably going to be caught in again at some point. And sometimes just being able to laugh at that, it gives me a little bit of separation. It lets me diffuse it for myself a little bit. Life is too short. Thank you for the question. Good luck either engaging with these conversations or 
exiting them with grace. Life is indeed too short. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates, comments, or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. On Twitter, we are at Emily Post Inst. Remember to use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette in your post so that we know you want your question or feedback on the show. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And today we hear from Scott. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. Thank you for brightening my Tuesday commutes each week. I found your podcast almost 200 episodes ago from listening to your Sunday morning segments on VPR. And like I am with VPR, I became an awesome etiquette sustaining member to support your efforts to better our world by extolling consideration, respect, and honesty. We thank you for that support. After listening to episode number 264, I would like to offer a couple of points as to the toilet seat conundrum. Years ago, when I was married, I negotiated a compromise with my wife. We agreed that when we were finished, we would make sure both the toilet seat and lid were in the down position, which also served to remove the temptation for a certain chocolate lab to put his nose where it didn't belong. (laughs) Also, I recently received training in custodial team cleaning through my employment at the U.S. Postal Service. In this system, when cleaning restrooms, one leaves the toilet seat up when done with the commode, which signifies that the toilet is clean and sanitized. This is from Scott in Claremont, New Hampshire. Hey, you know me. I'm a big fan of compromise. Anytime people living together can find compromise and come together on something, that is great. I think that that that's the key part of this particular feedback is that this couple found something that worked for them that they could both agree to and that felt right to them. And I am interested to learn, learn something new every day, that toilet seat left up after a custodial cleaning is a way that... To signal. You can signal, hey, look, it's really clean and... Isn't that nice? I don't necessarily think that Postal Service regulations are going to settle this pretty much eternal debate, but it's good to know where they come down on it. Thank you, Scott. And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. You can send your next comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can also leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today we're going to talk about cousins. We're going to talk about cousins? Because we're going to talk about cousins. Let's do it. (laughs) What do you want to talk about? Well, I want to talk about the fact that people often get really confused beyond cousins when it comes to family relations. Most of us are pretty good when it comes to mom, dad, and siblings, right? We've got like, we've got that down. And we recognize that our parents are a generation above us and that our siblings are on the same generation. And then most of us are really good with the fact that when our siblings have children, that those children are cousins to each other. And most of us who aren't of single children families grew up with a couple cousins often. And so, it's, and I say most of us, but that, you know, you could have only one member of a sibling group that had children. I, I get it. But how do you introduce it when your cousins start having kids and you're introducing cousins of one generation to cousins of another generation and they're already cousins? So who gets removed? 
removed because that happens too at some point is removal between generations or between siblings or between cousins and what goodness is going on here because introductions need to be made and technically and i hear this happen all the time <laughs> children of cousins will oftentimes refer to each other as cousins yes so you mean like your kids and Anna's kids because you and my sister Anna are cousins. Yes. Or if I had kids, your kids and my kids. It's an easy shorthand. Pooja has a lot of cousins. She has a very close family. A lot of her cousins have kids. And the kids of all the cousins just call each other cousins. cousins. <laughs> <laughs> I come from on my mom's side of the family, a family that is well connected among their third cousins, twice removed, and we uh, we all actually know each other. Family reunion happening this June. Um, but we figured we'd take a minute, and in Emily Post's Etiquette 19th edition, we actually talk about this subject on page 469 and talk about those once removed cousins and explain this as best we can to you now on the air. I can't wait. Take us through it, cuz. I love these examples because we use the names Betty and Bob. Betty and Bob are sister and brother. But what are their children to one another, and who is once removed? The answer lies in the generations. It begins with siblings. The children of siblings are first cousins because they are the first generation of cousins. So you and Will are brothers, and you each have two daughters. Those daughters are first cousins. Got it. Okay. That's pretty easy. Most people get that far. The children of siblings are first cousins because they are the first generation of cousins. So you and Will each have daughters. You are brothers. Your daughters to each other are first cousins. Got it. Most people get that far. The children of first cousins are second cousins to one another. You and I are first cousins. Our children, should I have any, end up being second cousins because they are the second generation of cousins to one another. Got it. So in some ways, those second cousins calling each other cousins is shorthand for second cousins. But technically, you're second cousins. Our kids have kids. Those are third cousins. Son of a gun. There's a certain logic to this. There really is. Okay, so here's once removed. Once removed doesn't indicate that a cousin was ever banished from the family, (laughs) just that the cousins are separated by a generation. So when your first cousin has a child, like Dan did, my first cousin, Dan, had a child, Anisha, you and that child are first cousins once removed. I am Anisha's first cousin once removed. Anisha is my first cousin Once removed, because there's a generation removed between us. We are removed a generation from each other. So that's where the once removed comes from. That's where the once removed comes from. And it's most of the time, once you start getting out there, everyone just calls everybody cousins. And so we just recognize that there are some removals. There's some generational. There's, you know, that it's expanded cousins. And often we just say extended cousins or, you know, cousins removed as a as like an overarching (laughs) statement. Cousin in law. Uh, This is one that we don't go to. So one of the other things, this is kind of a sidestep. I didn't realize we were going to jump into this topic today. But one of the things that people don't quite understand when it comes to in-laws is that your in-laws don't go beyond 
sort of the immediate family that you've married. Like, for instance, you, Dan, married Pooja, and you have a father-in-law and a mother-in-law, and you a have— A couple of sister-in-laws. A, yeah, two sister-in-laws, uh, a brother-in-law through a sister-in-law. You can have a brother-in-law through a sister-in-law or a sister-in-law through a brother-in-law, so by marriage. But what you don't start having are cousins-in-law. And, for instance, Kojo's brother, your brother-in-law through Pooja's sister— his own brother doesn't become your brother-in-law. So in other words, it doesn't extend that far out. You don't get your in-laws in-laws, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. But do I get my cousin's spouse as a cousin-in-law? You don't. Cousins-in-law like, aren't a thing. Okay. Not even a thing. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> it's it's more of a it's it's more of something that's like a a descriptor to help establish the family relationship as opposed to like an actual kind of family relationship title that we give it. I like it. Keep it simple. <laughs> we do try. We do try. We hope that helps everyone understand the once removed and understand first, second, and third cousins um, and how how that works between the generations. Again, if you want any more information or if you want to check out the chart that we have, it's on page 469 of Emily Post's Etiquette 19th edition. You know, so many people are asking how the Millers manage to have so much fun as a family. It's something they worked out together when they woke up to the fact that they wanted their family life to be fun. Who doesn't? We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today, we hear from Joyce. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I'm an avid fan, and I'm so happy to be able to share a salute with you and your listeners. My husband and I recently attended a Sting concert, at Wolf Trap Performing Arts Center outside Washington, D.C. The concert was just wonderful. However, I realized once we were too many miles away from the center that I had left my favorite jacket on the back of my seat. Oh, no. I was bummed, to say the least. With little hope of ever reuniting with my jacket, I called the center the next morning. A very kind employee by the name of Katie took the time to go over to the lost and found area where she located my jacket, called me back, and provided instructions on where I could return to pick it up. Within the hour, my jacket was back in my possession. So I am sending many thanks to not only Katie, but also to whoever turned my jacket into the lost and found. What seemed like such a simple act is something I am so appreciative of. Many thanks, Joyce. Joyce, I love it. And that is always such a great feeling when something lost is found. That is awesome. Thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who sent us something. Please connect with us and share this show with your friends, family, and coworkers, and on social media. You can send us your next question, comment, or salute by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Or by phone, you can leave us a message or t- send us a text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. And I am at Lizzie A. Post. That's Lizzie with an I-E. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. And don't forget, on Instagram, we are Emily Post Institute. Please do consider becoming a sustaining member. You can find out more about this by visiting awesomeetiquette.emilypost.com. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. 
And please consider leaving us a review. It helps with the show ranking, which helps other people find awesome etiquette. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. Bridget.